Hey everyone, this is Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast. Today I am answering the listener question, do you use saturation on everything? Now this is a great question and it's a little bit complicated to answer. So let me first describe the kind of workflow that I have going on. So the first thing to keep in mind is that I use pretty much exclusively outboard analog mic preamps. I don't have any preamps on my interface and most of the preamps I have in my outboard rig are relatively colored preamps. I have some from BAE and AML, a lot of Neve type stuff, and I have a couple of cleaner preamps. I have API preamps, which are kind of in the middle. They've got some color, but they're not as gritty or as aggressive as a Neve. I've got some uh, Millennia preamps, which are super clean, and I've got a Buzz preamp, which is clean, but kind of like enhanced clean. Uh, still doesn't really distort, but it's got a different sound than the Millennia. So I use preamps on the way in on specific things, and I use them on those things because I like the, the match of the microphone to the pre, and I like the match of coloration. So for example, if you're running... Uh, the, pretty much the hotter the source that you're using uh, generally will get more coloration or be more sensitive to coloration on the preamp because of the hot level. So if you're running a tube microphone, for example, uh, you will probably hear the coloration a little bit sooner than if you're running a ribbon mic, which is not only darker, but it's generally way lower output. So if I'm recording vocals, I generally want to go into a preamp that's kind of in the middle. I don't want something that's like super colored most of the time, but I also don't want something that's really clean because that just sounds boring to me. So a lot of times I go into sort of a middle of the road preamp. I really love the undertone uh, MPEQ, which is kind of like a more hi-fi Chandler type of thing. I also love the A designs, and sometimes I really love the API preamps because they have a kind of a cleaner character to them. Um, I very rarely will run into a Millennia or the Buzz for vocals just because it just sounds kind of boring to me. However, on things like snare drum or kick drum or guitars or toms, I find it essential to my workflow to run them through some sort of colored preamp. And I do that specifically to get a little bit of saturation on them, especially when it comes to things like kick, snare, and toms. Overheads, I'm kind of torn myself, even at the moment. I'm, I'm kind of always experimenting on overheads. Sometimes I want them colored. Sometimes I want them like ultra hi-fi. You know, I, I kind of go back and forth. But kick, snare, and toms, I have to have those through a really colored preamp so that I can drive them a little bit. And I do drive them almost every single time I'm working. Now, this might bring up the question, how much do you drive them? Do you distort them? Or, you know, how do you know what's too much or too little? Now, obviously, because we have a lot more saturation options in the box these days, I would rather do something a little bit cleaner than I think I'm going to need it than too much. I can always add a little bit more, but you can't remove it. But uh, one trick that you can do when setting a mic preamp is to turn up your gain until you hear it like noticeably distorting. And I don't mean like, I think I hear it like, oh, it's distorting and then back it off one click which in the case of many Neve preamps is 5 dB. That means that by the time that they hit a loud note on the snare or the kick or the toms, it'll clip. But when they're hitting a normal note, the normal sort of velocity, it probably will just clip a tiny bit. Okay, that's a good sort of starting place. 
for Sweet Spot. As we all know, sometimes when people are sound checking, they play way quieter than they really do. So definitely be aware of that. It's another reason I do it that way. It's a good starting place. Um, now, one thing that makes this annoying is when the preamp does not have an output trim or an attenuator of some kind. Some people will get a preamp like the A-Designs Pacifica, which is a great preamp based on a Quad 8. And you can't really drive them because there's no output attenuator. Now, you can make output attenuators yourself if you're handy with a soldering iron. You can buy them. There used to be a company called Gas that made an outboard attenuator unit. Now, I don't know if that company's still around, but regardless, there are companies making attenuators. Little Labs makes one. It's got DB25 inputs. You can hook it directly into a patch bay. Uh, it's a really handy device to have. And I highly recommend, if you want to experiment with saturation, you have to be aware that you're probably going to have to get attenuators on preamps that don't have them. Because if you want to be able to get that drive, it works just like a guitar amp. You drive your input gain and you reduce your output gain to get more drive. On a guitar amp, it's the same thing. If you want it super clean, you run that output all the way up and you run your input way down. It's the same with a mic preamp, okay? So if you want to saturate things, you're going to have to have preamps that have that. That's one of my annoyances with API preamps is that um, a lot of them traditionally don't have an output trim. They've added them on in recent years and recent versions, but for years and years they didn't have output trims. And so by the time you got the preamp to a part where it just started breaking up, you were clipping your converters, you know, and that's problematic. So that's something that I think people don't understand about driving microphone preamps is that you have to be able to attenuate the output so that you can drive the input hot enough. Another way that you can do this if you're using dynamic mics or ribbon mics is to get an inline preamp like an SE Dynamite or a Cloudlifter. That will bump the gain of that mic by anywhere from 20 to 30 dB, depending on you know which one of those preamps you get. That will make it easier to drive the preamp on a low output source. Okay, I love the SE Dynamites. I really really do. I've been using them a ton lately on all kinds of things uh, just to get more gain. So for example, if I really, really wanted to drive a snare, I might run an SE Dynamite on the dynamic mic itself into the preamp so I have a little bit more distortion available. Or if I really wanted to drive an SM57 on a vocal, I could do the same thing. Run it into a preamp with the SE Dynamite and just crank that gain. I'm using an SE Dynamite right now on my SM7 to record this quick tip. I regularly do that for the podcast and it really helps the SM7 have more gain. So on to the question itself a little bit more directly, do I saturate everything? No but I'm still running through analog preamps for everything, and most of the time, the majority of sources are going through some sort of colored preamp, even acoustic guitar. You know, the only thing that I tend to run with the super clean preamps are things like rooms. However, I typically compress rooms with very colored compressors. So I'm only using those preamps on the room mics because I think the transient response is amazing, and I love how it retains clarity and punch when that mic is farther away. And also, I tend to use uh, an AEA R88 on drum rooms, which is a ribbon. So I need a lot of clean gain, and I want great transient response. And then I run that into a Chandler Zener limiter, which is a very, very colored outboard compressor. And so I'm still saturating to a degree. You know, I'm just doing it in a different order. 
So I kind of do saturate everything. It's just in different degrees. Now, this is one of the most annoying parts about modern digital audio is that if you are recording to an interface or you're using cleaner pre's, you're using onboard preamps, and I'm assuming you're not using UAD just for this conversation, but if you're just using onboard preamps or really basic clean preamps, and there are a ton of very clean preamps out there, or if you're using preamps that don't have attenuators on them that you can't drive, chances are you're recording stuff really, really clean. And if you want to get that sound that we all kind of love about professional recordings, you might need to consider adding saturation to quite a bit of things. Now, saturation does not have to be obvious. It can be very subtle, but it does magical things to transients. It does magical things in the high mids and the highs. It does magical things all around. And uh, watch my videos on saturation on my YouTube channel for a little bit more in-depth info about that. And also make sure that you listen to the saturation podcast that I had. I don't know when that was. A little while ago. <laughs> a couple it's months, a year. I don't, I don't know. Time is, time is an illusion in 2020. I don't, I don't even remember. But listen to that and try to understand exactly what's happening and watch my videos on YouTube because I think that will help explain it. But saturation has this ability to tame the spiky peaks of a sound and make it sound louder and fuller without necessarily even sounding like you're doing anything, okay? Saturation does not always have to be distortion or obvious or, you know, drive per se, okay? And I think that's one area where a lot of plugins kind of erroneously take it too far. Now, that doesn't mean it's not cool sometimes, but if you're trying to emulate a tape machine or a preamp, it's like they don't always have that much gain. You know what I mean? It's like the gain staging is kind of done in such a way that you can push it farther than you could push a real unit. For example, the Waves Kramer Tape plugin. I think that plugin's great. I use it. I've used it on all kinds of records. But like the amount of shred that you can get on that plugin from driving it is just like absolutely nuts. Like a real tape machine. I'm pretty sure it would just shred at that point. Like, it's ridiculous how much distortion you can get on that thing. That doesn't mean it doesn't sound good, but I'm just talking about, like, if you want to emulate analog gear. So, to some degree, I do use saturation on almost every channel. And I'm not saying you have to. I'm not saying that's even the, the right way to go. I'm just saying that's what I tend to do. Now, in the box, I very often am using saturation on snare again. I very often am using saturation on vocal. Vocals, sometimes in parallel on a vocal. Very often I'm using saturation on the master bus, usually tape of some kind, usually pretty subtle. Very often I'm using saturation on keys and bass and sometimes in parallel on drums. And all of that goes to say, I'm not necessarily trying to get my mixes to sound distorted. It's for different purposes. It's for brightness. It's for electric kind of quality. I, I need to come up with a better word because I've used that term and I think it's confused a few people. But there's this sound that I hear when saturation is done right where it's like this really lively, present top end. It's like what a Marshall does when you crank up the presence control. It, you feel this like electricity under your fingers. Not literally, but you know, it's like this really lively, aggressive, sharp top end that just cuts. And a lot of times that's really cool on rock music or indie music or anything where you need that forward, in-your-face sound. And a lot of that can be accomplished by saturation. Again, 
in a real analog situation, if you were recording with a big tape machine and a console and all that, you would be running through tons of stages of saturation. You'd be running into a console, for one, where you might drive the pre's. You probably will. You'd be running into a tape machine. And then if you were mixing from that tape machine, you'd go back into a console, maybe drive the stuff again, and then you'd go to a two-track machine. So you'd be going through two tape machines, at least, and the console twice. And that doesn't even count the outboard compressors, outboard EQs, any of that other stuff. Now, personally, I think people get a little bit too obsessed with outboard EQs and outboard compressors because of the color and because of all this. It's like, to be honest, they don't add as much color as you think, especially EQs. I mean, yes, a Poltec has a sound. It does add a little bit of color, but compared to driving a mic preamp, it's not even close, right? Now, certain compressors definitely have their own sort of color, especially like Veramu compressors or diode bridge compressors. So Neve compressors, EMI compressors, Chandler compressors, very, very colorful pieces. Also like a Veramu, the Manly Veramu, or the Retro Stay Level, or the Retro 176, or a Fairchild. Those pieces are all very colorful and add their own saturation very noticeably. They're not subtle pieces, but something like an LA-2. Even though it's a tube compressor, it's still pretty clean. It has a little bit of a high-end sheen that kind of is added. Same with, like, the tube tech, same kind of thing. But overall, it's fairly subtle um, as compared to running, you know, driving a mic preamp one more click. So if you've ever subscribed to Mix with the Masters, one thing you might have noticed is that so many of these pros are pushing their consoles hard, really hard. And that's either tracking or mixing. So you might ask, why? Why are they pushing the console so hard? And when I try to do that with preamps, it doesn't sound good or, you know, with plugins, whatever. So here's the thing to keep in mind. A lot of times, consoles distort way more subtly than certain mic preamps might or certain plugins might. Uh, they still do distort, though, and they get this, you know, that saturated thing, especially when we're talking about you know, Neve consoles or old, like, tube consoles or certain things like that. Now, the SSL console, on the other hand, does saturate, it does distort, but it's a little bit cleaner and different sounding than a Neve, okay? It's got a lot of third-order harmonics. Uh, some people would consider that harsh. I don't consider that harsh, but it's just a different sound. So, you might ask yourself, do I need to put saturation plugins on every channel if I record clean? You don't have to, but it is something you could consider. What I would recommend trying, if you feel like your stuff just isn't sounding right, or you feel like, am I missing something with saturation? Why am I not, you know, every time I put it on, it just sounds like distortion. What I recommend first is arming yourself with the best saturation plugins that you can find. Even if you just get demos of them to try them out, see what you like. Um, I will list some of my absolute favorites, okay? First of all, anything from Gregory Scott and UBK and Kush is unbelievable. He has some of the best, most realistic-sounding saturation plugins on the market. And I'm talking about UBK-1, AR-1, uh, Novatron, the Silica Compressor. Just amazing-sounding saturation. And as well, he's got these uh, preamp emulations, like the Omega stuff unbelievable saturation and i can tell you as someone that has analog preamps many of them they sound 
like analog. I mean, they really blow my mind. How good they sound. Uh, and I love how they sound. I use them a lot. But I also love the soft tube harmonics plugin. I love Sound Toys Decapitator, and I love Sound Toys CQ. I love Sound Toys Radiator. Plugin Alliance has a couple of great offerings in the saturation department. I really, really love their console series. Those plugins are incredible. Console E and Console G, uh, which are now like SSL endorsed. I mean, they're amazing plugins. And of course, UAD is known for making amazing analog emulations, and their saturation uh, does not disappoint. Their 1073 and 1084 modules are so incredible. The EQ sounds incredible. The saturation sounds incredible. And their tape machines, in my opinion, cannot be beat in the digital domain. I have yet to hear a better sounding tape emulation than the UAD stuff. So those are plugins that I would recommend checking out. I have been, you know, I hate to say disappointed, but a little bit underwhelmed by Waves and Slate Digital. I've done many shootouts of lots of different saturation plugins, and usually the top contenders are those ones I listed. Kush, UBK, UAD, Sound Toys. Those are usually all in the top 10 best-sounding ones on every type of source. Snare, vocals, drum bus, master bus... Those are usually in the top. They just know what they're doing in that department. And even though I like a lot of Slate plugins and a lot of Waves plugins, and they sound cool, and I use them regularly, they don't quite sound like analog to me. They sound cool. You know, I like them. But do they sound like real preamps? Do they sound like the preamps I've got in my rack? Not quite. So... I highly recommend checking out those plugins. I also recommend that people have at least two solid analog preamps in their lineup. Me personally, I'm a big Neve guy. I think that's mostly because I grew up listening to a ton of rock music and all my heroes used Neve preamps and the first studio I worked at had Neve preamps and all, you know, it's just a kind of in my blood, right? Like I, I just kind of like learned on a Neve. Now, I don't own a Neve console, but I have owned tons of Neve preamps or Neve-styled preamps. And so I feel pretty confident in knowing that sound and what I can get out of it. But there are also times when, like I said, I prefer an API preamp, I prefer a Pacifica, I prefer, you know, Millennia, um, lots of different things. Anyway, my point is I highly recommend you have a pair of analog preamps in your arsenal that you can drive stuff on the way in. Not only because I think it's good practice to have something that's real, that you can saturate in real time and hear it on the way in, but because it's a big time saver. Because if you do add saturation to every single channel, let's say you wanted to, how much CPU is that eating up and how much extra time are you spending by adding saturation to every single channel? I would guess a lot in both categories. So if you have something that you can do on the way in, you will save yourself a lot of time. And again, you can add things in stages when it comes to saturation, and sometimes it sounds better to do that because, I mean, in fact, that's the sound we're used to. Like I said, there's, you know, the tape machine and the console and another console and another tape machine and outboard gear and all this stuff. So if you have two analog preamps, that can get you through recording most things. Now, it won't get you through recording necessarily a full drum kit, but if we're talking about vocals, guitars, keys sound, piano sound, you can get a ton of work done with two solid analog mic preamps. 
If you need recommendations for that, I can give you some in terms of what I like, but you know, you definitely need to read reviews, do your research, see what you like. Um, there are so many options out there today, which is great. I also wanted to touch briefly on the universal audio stuff. So if you're using a UA interface, you have these unison mic preamps. And even though I do think the universal audio saturation and things sounds amazing, it's still not quite the same as trying to do it with a clean preamp on everything and then adding saturation to it. Okay, like partly the interaction of the microphone into the preamp itself, the matching of impedance, how that compares. It's a different situation when you're running into the same clean preamp on an interface and then adding saturation on top of that. It still sounds good. Don't get me wrong. I think that UAD stuff is amazing, uh, but it is a little bit different. And you might like it, you might not, you might prefer it, you know, but I'm just saying that is an option too. If you really don't want to spend a bunch of money on analog gear, or at least some money, you know, there are a lot of affordable options now. Um, the universal audio interfaces that have the unison mic pre's are a great option for you. You know, they have like the uh, Apollo 8 XP, uh, I think that's 8 XP, something like that. Uh, or X8P, or I don't remember the numbers. It's the one that has eight mic preamps, okay? You could run drums through eight channels and saturate every single one, even just a little bit. Again, it, you don't always have to go as far as as hearing it as distortion, right? Like, like I said, my tip is to up the gain until you can hear audible distortion, and you have to play with the input gain, big red knob on a Neve, for example, and the output trim. You have to play with them simultaneously. That's one nice thing about analog is that you've got two hands and you can crank the gain while turning down the output simultaneously, right? In the computer, it's a little bit more annoying because you gotta have to mouse over to one, mouse to the other. So you have to do that. You have to turn up the gain and then pull back the output. Turn up the gain, pull back the output and just work it until it sounds right. Now, on a Neve, you'll notice that all the steps are 5 dB. On other preamps, it's a little bit different, okay? So you gotta be aware of that, how much to compensate for every click. Um, it's very common in my world to start a source, whether it's a vocal or something, on the Neve at the 35 dB gain mark. It's a very common starting place. Uh, and just adjust the trim. Vocals, I really like that as a starting place, and I'll bump it up. Um, Another tip that I have for you is when working with saturation on really dynamic sources, okay? This can be problematic. So really dynamic vocalists, for example, um, yes, you can oversaturate your preamp very easily and ruin a line if it was too distorted. So best case scenario, uh, they control themselves really well and keep a really even, um, really even performance. Worst case scenario, they can't control themselves at all, and the verse is like whisper quiet, and the chorus is super loud. Now, there are things you can do. For example, I have one client that comes to mind who I really love his voice, but he's super dynamic, probably too dynamic. Might, might need to learn to kind of reel that in. And I ride the gain as he is singing the whole song. So when he's singing like a verse... I'll crank the gain up, I'll click it 5 dB or 10 dB up, and then maybe he goes to the pre-chorus, and I'll click it down one. And again, I'm clicking in up and down in between lines. Um, and no, you don't hear the clicks. On a good preamp, you won't hear a pop on the, any, when you 
you know, click the preamp. Um, but what I'm doing is I'm trying to get that perfect amount of saturation the whole song. Now, if you don't have an analog preamp or you'd rather just be on the safe side and run the preamp super clean, one thing that you can do in the box to emulate this technique is to go through and use clip gain on your entire vocal performance and even out the volumes of your verse and your chorus and stuff like that a little bit more even and then run into something that is saturated. So for those of you that are a little bit leery of using saturation on the way in, that is a good technique. Just run your stuff clean and then adjust your clip gain to be more even on your vocal or whatever it is and then run through saturation so that you get a more consistent level of saturation, right? Um, because yes, you can go too far for sure. And can you get it back? No, you kind of ruin it forever. Uh, so that is something to be very cautious of. I talked about that sort of idea a little bit on the uh, analog compression episode that we had. Um, yes, it is a little bit scary, but you get used to it. Like me, for example, I've been using these types of preamps for so long. I know what I'm listening for. And many of you out there know what you're listening for on your preamps, but some of you don't, and you, you're not really sure what to listen for. But I promise you, the more that you get your ear tuned to saturation and what you're really listening for, where you're listening, okay, um, your ear will start to notice, all right, that's just enough, right? I hear the pre kind of kicking in. It's not distorting, but it's also not, you know, colorless, right? It's not just clean. You're on that line, you know. It's a similar thing that we like about guitar amps that are, quote, edge of breakup, right? It's this, like, magical spot that when you play harder, you get a little bit of distortion. When you play light, you get clean. It's a similar kind of thing when it comes to mic preamps, is you find that sweet spot on the mic pre where when the vocalist digs in a little bit, it gets a little bit raspy, but not really, doesn't really read as distortion but it gets a little bit of edge, right? But when they're singing quieter, it's like still pretty pristine, but the gain is loud and it's up front, okay? And then another thing to consider is that I almost always am recording vocals with compression on the way in as well. So that helps even it out. Now, it's not evening it out pre-saturation, right? Because it's after the mic pre. That is one thing that, you know, I would love to see more preamps have uh, better variable gain on them. You know, I'm so used to the Neve thing, 5 dB clicks. You know, I wish that it had like 2.5 dB clicks at least, or like 3 dB clicks or something. Um, but it, it does make it quick, right? It makes it easy for, for quick transitions. Um, but sometimes it's tough to get that perfect amount. Again, you can always add more later. You can't undo it. So when in doubt, run it a little bit cleaner. For the most part, the things that will benefit most from saturation are going to be drums, bass, vocals. I do use saturation on keys and guitars and synths and things like that, but it just kind of depends on the vibe you're going for, and it depends what you need to get out of it, right? You should think about saturation as a tonal shaping tool, not just a way to get grit or, you know, like I said, distortion, anything like that. Again, watch some of my YouTube videos about saturation, and you'll hear how subtle it can be. Uh, I'm going to show you an example, though, of some drums that were recorded very clean, 
and then let's talk about sort of the different levels of saturation that can be achieved. Okay, so what we've got first is pretty simple, clean drums. Now, obviously, certain microphones are going to have a little bit of inherent saturation if they're condensers that have large transformers or, you know, because I'm using analog preamps, you're going to hear some saturation, possibly. I don't have enough super clean preamps to record things 100% clean. However, I'm running the gain really low on all of them. And so, in theory, all of these channels should be relatively clean. And what we've got is stereo overheads, stereo room, kick in, kick out, snare top, hi-hat, and over the kick mic. Um, so I'm just going to play you what we've got so far. This is a basic balance of drums, and um, it doesn't have any additional processing, just a little bit of EQ on the hi-hat. I forgot to turn that off. I'd basically just a high-pass filter, um, but nothing else has EQ on it or compression or anything. These are just raw drums. So what I wanted to do is go through each channel and just show you the type of saturation that I'm kind of looking to hear while recording, all right? This might be helpful for many of you who are kind of like, what kind of saturation are we talking about here? Like, I'm afraid to record with too much saturation, but yeah, so I'm going to just uh, solo up my overheads. So typically what I'm looking for on overheads is uh, a little bit of control of the snare and a little bit of crispiness on the cymbals. So I'm going to pull up saturation now. Uh, bypass AB to make sure my levels are close. So, those levels are pretty close to the ear, but let me tell you this. Uh, when the saturation is off, my snare level that's poking through is hitting about negative 10. With the saturation on, about negative 18. So we've essentially shaved off 8 dB on those snare peaks. Uh, but it doesn't sound like tons of distortion to the ear. I'll play that again. This is off. On. Okay, so that's one example. Here's uh, stereo rooms. Okay, pretty dark, so I'm going to use actually uh, the Neve mode on Decapitator.
check my before and after. It's still a little bit too loud. Alright, that's close enough for what we're trying to do here. Again, let me tell you about the peaks. Without it, we're hitting about negative 15, and with it, about negative 19, so we're saving about 4 dB on that. Let's go to kick. This is my kick in, and a lot of times for kick in, I don't want a ton of saturation, but I do like a little bit of high frequency saturation. So I'm actually going to try FabFilter Saturn, and I'm gonna saturate mostly in the highs. is without with without with pretty subtle in the grand scheme I also don't want to saturate too much on my kick in because that's where I'm getting a lot of the punch from the kick and the definitions so I want to make sure I still have plenty of transient uh, let's go to kick out I love the straight-up Neve 1073 style distortion on a kick out uh, so I'm gonna be using that This is without, with, that's nice. Again, peak-wise, without saturation, about minus 10, and with, about minus 17, so we're saving 7 dB on that. Now let's go to snare, the all-important snare. I'm going to go back to Decapitator Neve mode.
Okay, so do you hear how the saturation kind of spreads out the attack a little bit more? This is without. With. Without. Now, there is something to be desired about the... Uh, uh, unsaturated version. However, when we add compression to this, which we probably will, either on the channel or on the drum bus or on the master bus, some of that punch will come back. Okay, and again, this is just a quick example with this particular saturation plugin. Uh, there are tons of others on the market that I love as well on snare, but this is just one of them. For our peak compare, um, without. about negative seven and with about negative 10. Okay, so we're saving about three dB on that. Possibly more later in the song. Uh, let's go to hi-hat. I'm gonna go back to Fab Filter Saturn. I'm gonna do a little bit of high frequency saturation. When I say high frequency saturation, I'm basically putting a crossover point about 500 hertz and only saturating in the high band. This is without. With. So pretty subtle overall. I don't like to do tons of saturation on hi-hat, but I will drive the pre just the tiniest little bit, mostly to control some of those snare hits that crunch through and to make sure it doesn't get too pokey. Hi-hat has a tendency to get really pokey. Uh, again, if I compare my peaks with and without. We're talking about negative 18 and with negative 23. Okay, it doesn't even sound like we're doing much, but we're controlling peaks about 5 dB by doing that. And then OTK. I'm going to go back to Neve style saturation again, just a normal 1073 from UAD. I actually like this mic to have a good amount of mids, so I don't mind saturating it a little bit heavier. And when I record this mic, I do saturate a bit. This is without. With. Without. This one's a little bit harder to level match because the RMS is so much more, but let me just compare uh, real quick. So right now, when we're talking about the peaks of this, without saturation, about negative 15, and with saturation, about negative 21. So we are saving between 3 and 8 dB on basically every channel. So 
I've got my saturation dialed in. I'm going to rebalance this stuff and uh, play them back to back so you can hear an example of what's going on. Now, it's a little bit tough to kind of give a super fair representation because um, they're obviously different RMS levels and it's kind of a separate drum mix, but I did the best I could. So let's play these back to back. Uh, these are our dry drums without saturation. And our drums with. I'll go a little bit faster between those two. Here's dry, saturated, dry, saturated. So you might be saying to yourself, those don't sound that much different. Isn't that a lot of money and effort for such a subtle effect? Well, yes and no. One thing I should clarify is, again, I'm just trying to show you the types of saturation I might do on the way in. That's not to say I won't add more in the mix if I need to, or I might add some in parallel, or I might do something else with it. I'm not quite sure, but I'm just trying to give you an example of what I'm listening for on the way in. Another thing to keep in mind is that even though what you're hearing has no EQ and compression, I am also EQing and compressing on the way in with analog gear. So there's a relationship between the preamp saturation and what I'm running into. Like I said, I might typically run a cleaner preamp on rooms, but then run through a really colored compressor or something similar. I might do a lot more saturation and then not compress on something else. Okay, so that's something I can't really demonstrate in this exact context when this episode is mostly about saturation and not compression. However, compression is an incredibly important part of the formula, and how a saturated sound reacts into a compressor is so much different than how a clean sound reacts going into a compressor. And that's one of the most important parts that I want to get across with this episode. Let's put a little bit of compression on our drum bus and compare again. Okay, I'm using a 33609, and what you're going to hear is that the dry drums are going to sound a little bit more slappy and pokey, and I'll explain why in a second. So here's our dry drums. Saturated. Dry. Saturated. So we're actually getting less compression on our saturated drums, and that's because all of the saturation that we added tamed a lot of those peaks. And anytime you're using a compressor, you're dealing with a fixed threshold that you either is fixed in the unit or you set, right? But that threshold doesn't necessarily move. So what that means is, as you remember, when we put on a little bit of saturation on our overheads and our rooms, we got about 7 or 8 dB of peak reduction as compared to our unsaturated version. What that means is 
those saturated sounds will hit compressors differently. And remember, many of the compressors that we like and that we use and that we emulate are designed or were originally designed to work in the analog domain. And they're expecting a signal that has maybe a slight amount of saturation. And so what happens is when you're using something that is unsaturated and you try to put compression on it, you're kind of unnecessarily triggering that compressor more than you have to because it's seeing this big spiky peak and it's reacting, right? Now, again, to the ear, the saturated versus the unsaturated doesn't sound tons different. Again, here's our overheads unsaturated. And saturated. Dry. Saturated. So there's definitely some crunch going on in the snare, but it's not like crazy, right? However, the difference in peaks is almost 6 dB between the dry and the unsaturated um, or in the saturated versions. And that's really significant. It's actually more like eh, six and a half, seven dB. So those will hit compressors differently. And so sometimes when we're watching our, our heroes mix and we're seeing compression figures and, you know, they're like, oh, I'm just tapping the compressor, you know, two dB. And you try to do that and it doesn't sound like enough. That's partly potentially because you're dealing with these really spiky peaks that are not saturated in the way that analog consoles or tape machines would just naturally do, right? Those pieces of gear would naturally do that without you even wanting it. <laughs> and you kind of had to do that, especially on tape, to get a good signal-to-noise ratio. So you had to run the signal hot enough where you're not going to get into noise issues. But when you did that, it started to saturate the tape, right? Even if just a little bit. And so when you'll see guys say things like, oh, I use slow attack and fast release on a kick drum or a snare to get more attack. Part of that is because the analog gear would shave off a little bit of that attack. The difference, however, is that when you're dealing with a more consistent, leveled out peak, the compressor does not have to work as hard. The compressor can consistently reduce the same amount of gain reduction. So it could be, you know, a variance of... 7, 8, 10 dB on a totally uncompressed or unsaturated sound, but when you saturate and shave off those peaks, they might be only varying a couple dB. So that means it hits the compressor more evenly. So you don't have to compress, you know, 6 dB on the big hits. You're compressing 2 or 3 the entire time. I hope that makes sense. I hope this gave you some things to consider when it comes to saturation and why it's important to consider this uh, in a way that, unfortunately, we didn't have to consider back in the day. We did not have to think about necessarily how much stuff is being saturated and by how much and what type of saturation. The gear just did it. We've talked about that on the podcast before. Um, so this is why I'm an advocate for people owning some analog preamps, why I'm an advocate for using little bits of saturation here and there. It's not necessarily because you want a certain crunchy vibe, right? It can be really subtle, but part of it is so that things 
are a little bit more gelled. So overall, compression just seems to work a bit better. Things come together faster. Things are more controlled. And things just seem to not be as pokey or as harsh. And you don't have to deal with as many of those strong transients, especially when it comes to your master bus or when sending to mastering. One thing I have noticed over the years is that early on I had mastering engineers telling me I needed to control my peaks better and uh, I was essentially sending mixes that were insanely dynamic. You know, they had crest factors of 20 dB and that was just really, really hard to deal with in the, the mastering to get that loud. And so over time, you know, I would say starting about 2015, uh, I really started learning a lot more about saturating and mixing for loudness. And I have videos about that on my YouTube channel. I highly recommend checking them out. They might explain some of this stuff. But the idea of using saturation as sort of a means to an end, not necessarily using it because I want stuff to sound distorted, but you almost have to in order to control stuff enough to where it sounds even and punchy and clear and articulate, but in your face at the same time and more controlled, more controllable and easier to work with on the mix bus and in mastering. Nowadays, I don't have any problem getting stuff loud because I have a much better handle on what I'm listening for in terms of controlling peaks, in terms of saturating in little stages, right? A little bit maybe from the mic, a little bit at the preamp, maybe a little bit in the mix. That also tends to come off more subtle if you do it in small stages. A good example of this is the microphone that I used on this drum example on Kick Out is a Bach IFET, and that's a very high headroom microphone, but usually I use a Charter Oak E700, which is not. It's very wide frequency response and extends very low, but it has a transformer that saturates, and I love how that sounds on outside kick. Again, I'm also running my preamps really clean. They are Neve-style preamps for the most part, but I'm not running them uh, very hot at all. But there's still going to be more saturation than what you're hearing on, say, stock interface preamps or like millennia preamps. Um, so I couldn't even necessarily give the ultra-clean example if I was running through all, you know, Grace or millennia preamps or stock interface preamps. Just keep this in mind when you're starting to work through saturation and figure out how am I going to get that... Uh, control in my workflow? Is it going to come from, you know, emulations? Is it going to come from buying some analog preamps? Is it going to come from using like universal audio where you've got the unison preamps that you can drive a little bit on the way in? Um, the big lesson I want you to take away here is you don't have to saturate very much, but it can pay itself back massive dividends later on down the line especially when working with rock music, pop music, uh, any modern style of music. It can really, really work to your benefit in the mix. So I hope this episode was helpful. If you have any questions about saturation, make sure to check out my YouTube channel and my other podcast episodes about saturation because it is a very deep topic. It is complicated. Also, you can send me an email at recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com, and I'll be happy to try to help you uh, with any questions you might have. Uh, thanks for listening to this episode. I hope that uh, your saturation experiences and knowledge have improved, and I'll talk to you next time. See ya.